Welcome to Tashma, the podcast where you get to listen in on Hadar's Beat Midrash. This year, each week, we will hear a Devar Torah on the Parsha from Rabbi David Kasher. Let's listen. Even as Parshat Mishpatim marks a sharp transition from epic narrative to dense legal code, the first law of that code makes it clear that the stories of the Torah have not been forgotten. It's no coincidence that the opening Mishpat deals with the requirement to let a Hebrew slave go free, just after we've read the story of the Hebrew slaves being freed and going out, Yatsu, from the land of Egypt. A more pointed reference to the Exodus is then inserted a few verses later in the instruction to take a slave who declines his freedom to have his ear pierced on the doorpost, Hamizuzah, a word we've only seen before during the night of the final plague, when the Israelites were instructed to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the two doorposts, Mizuzot. The laws of the Torah, it seems, can be in conscious dialogue with the previous narrative, serving as a form of reflection and commentary on what has come before. Three more cases in Parshat Mishpatim all employ this technique, but push us back further than the Exodus narrative into the family dramas of Genesis. One of those cases comes very soon, just a few lines further on, when we're presented with one case of manslaughter and one of homicide. The terms of the law itself are that the accidental killer can flee to a place of refuge, but an intentional killer must be put to death. But the wording of the case is threaded through with subtle references to an earlier story. Make ish vamet motumat, one who fatally strikes a man will surely die. Va'asher lo tzada, va'elohim inaliado, but if he did not plot to kill the other, but it came about by an act of God, I will assign you a place to which he can flee. V'chi yazid ish al reihu, but if he intentionally schemes against another and kills him through deception, arama, you shall take that person from my very altar to be put to death. The callback words here are not as conspicuous as mezuzah, but taken together, they lead us back to a very specific moment in the Genesis narrative. The word here for intentional action, or scheming, yazid, will eventually become an important category in Jewish law, distinguishing between intentional and unintentional sins. But its first usage was in a very different context. V'yigdalu hanarim v'yihi esav ish yodea tsaid, ish sadeh, v'yakov ish tam, yoshev ohalim. The boys grew up and Esav became a man who knew how to hunt, a man of the field, while Yaakov was a mild man who sat in tents. Yitzchak loved Esav because he had game in his mouth, tsaid b'fiv, but Rivka loved Yaakov. Once Yaakov prepared a stew, vayazed Yaakov nazid, and Esav came in from the field exhausted. The words for Yaakov's preparing the stew, vayazed Yaakov nazid, use the same root as the word in our parsha for scheming, yazid. For the basic meaning of this root, Zion Vav Dalet, is to do something intentionally. Once we've made that connection, we might also notice that the word for plotting in our parsha, tzada, is similarly related to the word for hunting or trapping or game in the Yaakov and Esav story, tzaid. 
These are not common words in the Torah. That much linguistic relatedness constitutes a reference. But what would this law be saying about the story of Esau's sale of his birthright to Yaakov? No one was killed in that tale. The only transgression we might wonder about is that perhaps Yaakov took advantage of Esau's exhaustion and temperament and made the most of the moment. But let's consider the connecting words. The schemer in our law in Exodus is guilty, whereas the one who did not plot or entrap is allowed to flee the scene. In the earlier story, ironically, it's the hunter or the trapper in the story, Esav, who was acting without guile, whereas the mild-mannered tent dweller was perhaps guilty of scheming, setting a trap for his brother. Now, Yaakov is our ancestor. Our tradition generally regards his acquiring the birthright as a good thing and offers various justifications for his various manipulations. But there's no doubt that Yaakov is a schemer. He gets by in the world by deal-making and outmaneuvering, sometimes even deceiving. If you've ever read those stories of his early life and felt uncomfortable with the ethics of his behavior, you will be inclined to read the hints in our law as a subtle condemnation of Yaakov's behavior suggesting that his scheming was something akin to murder, depriving Esav of his life's legacy. Of course, Yaakov did not really kill his brother, so his consequence will be fleeing, not death. But we're being asked to look back at his behavior and to question whether he is the protagonist in this story, or perhaps the antagonist. Before we race to condemn Yaakov, however, another law in Parshat Mishpatim brings us to a moment in which Yaakov is the aggrieved party, and it is others who are doing him harm. The law considers the case of a shomer, a guardian, someone who has agreed to watch over his neighbor's animal, and then it dies, injures, or goes missing. Im tarof yitaref, if it was torn, torn apart by beasts, he shall bring it as evidence, and then he will not have to pay. The repetition of the word for torn catches the eye. In Hebrew, it's tarof yitaref, torn, torn apart. If that sounds familiar, that's because very similar doubled language appears in the story of Yosef and his brothers. Hating him, they sold him into slavery and then tricked their father Yaakov into believing he was killed by a wild animal. They took a piece of Yosef's clothing and dipped it into goat's blood. And when Yaakov saw it, this is what he said. Ketonet b'ni, chaya ra'a achlatu, taruf taraf Yosef. My son's coat, an evil beast devoured him. Yosef has been torn, torn apart. Again, there is the doubling of the language. Torn, torn apart, taruf taraf. Two different books of the Torah, 45 chapters apart, but the similarity is striking. What might this law be saying about the earlier narrative? Unlike the story of the selling of the birthright, the crime here is unambiguous. The brothers kidnapped Yosef, also forbidden in Parshat Mishpatim, and then sold him and then lied about it. Note that the law here in Exodus requires that someone who claims a wild beast tore an animal apart must bring the remains of the animal itself as evidence. Yosef's brothers, meanwhile, brought only Yosef's bloody coat as proof of his untimely demise. The law seems to be correcting that flimsy evidentiary standard. If Yaakov had only insisted on seeing the body, he would have caught his sons in their lie, 
and perhaps gone looking for Yosef and been spared 22 years of heartache. This time, Yaakov is not the schemer, but the one who has been schemed. Our sympathies lie with him. Yet, in a sense, the law's critique is still directed at Yaakov. We don't need to be told, after all, that what Yosef's brothers did was wrong. That much is obvious. But Yaakov should have insisted on better proof for such a shocking claim. One final case, toward the end of the legal code in Parshat Mishpatim, also presents us with hints of a critique directed toward an otherwise sympathetic character. The law is well known, in part because it's repeated in Deuteronomy, in the section that calls for the appointment of judges. Here's the language from our parsha: V'shochad lotikach, do not take bribes, ki ha-shochad ye'aver pikchim v'salef divrei tzadikim. For a bribe can blind those who see and distort the words of the righteous. This time, the reference backward is not made through parallel words. Instead, to find the connection, we have to ask about the contours of the scenario. Is there anyone in the Torah so far who was known to be blind and who might have taken a bribe? A midrash from the Tanchuma identifies the character for us and suggests that the law in our parsha can help explain his blindness. Why had Yitzchak's eyes dimmed, as it says in Genesis 27? Because Esav would bring him game and feed it to him. For it is written, Bribes blind those who can see. It's usually assumed that Yitzchak had grown blind due to old age and that Yaakov and Rivka took advantage of that frailty and tricked him by dressing one son up as the other. But this Midrash places the blame on Yitzchak himself for allowing himself to be bribed by Esav. And there's some logic to this connection in the verse from Genesis. Note how closely the mention of Yitzchak's blindness is to his request for Esav's gifts. There in the very same verse. Yitzhak had grown old and his eyes had dimmed from seeing. And he called Esav his elder son. He asks Esav to catch and prepare a dish he likes so that I can give you my life's blessing, he says. That was the bribe solicitation and that's what caused him to be blinded. In this case, literally, though, of course, the suggestion offered by the law's commentary is also that Yitzchak's perspective had become distorted because he willingly orchestrated his own manipulation. Remember that he was biased from the start. Yitzchak loved Esav because there was game in his mouth. But Rivka loves Yaakov. Each parent favored one of the two boys from the start, but Rivka simply loves Yaakov, unconditionally, whereas Yitzchak loved Esav, especially when there was game, Tzayid, in his mouth. Yitzchak likes the food that Esav traps, and through it, Yitzchak is entrapping himself, allowing himself to be lured into favoritism. This is a character we tend to regard as entirely victimized in this scene. But the law of bribe-taking in Parshat Mishpatim reminds us that Yitzchak was perhaps not entirely innocent in this drama, even as it warns us to be on the lookout for our own biases and self-delusions. What do we make of all this? 
First, we've seen that the law of the Torah is clearly written with an awareness of the Torah's earlier narrative. That will be important to look out for as we encounter other legal sections in the Torah. But is the law also written as a kind of coded condemnation of earlier characters, with an agenda to problematize again and again the heroes of Genesis? Was Yaakov a criminal? Was Yitzchak corrupt? On the contrary, the laws of the Torah evoke the earlier stories because the lawgiver is deeply sympathetic to the challenges our ancestors faced. The Torah is being given to a people who lived in a world without a robust legal system, first as nomads and then as slaves. It was hard for them to know how to resolve conflicts, to know how to treat each other. Human instincts sometimes produced great righteousness and compassion, but often produced violent conflict and selfish competition. There were customs and virtues in those days, but there was no set of laws that everyone could agree on to set a clear standard for peaceful, equitable living. In those days, as Moshe put it in his farewell address, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. We must understand the moral dilemmas our ancestors struggled through in order to appreciate the value of the Mishpatim. We need these laws. Without them, we might tear each other apart. Thanks for listening. I wanted to let you know that I'm teaching an online Parsha class every Thursday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, in partnership with Ikar. Uh, we'll take a deeper dive into some aspect of the material we covered in this Dvar Torah. So if you love these podcasts, it's a great way to keep the conversation going. Sign up for free at hadar.org forward slash west. Our producers for this episode are Sam Greenberg and Jeremy Tabak. Thank you to Nadav Remez for editing this episode. I'm your host, Rabbi Avi Killip. It's been a pleasure to learn with you.